Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. We are at ReformCon 2022. I will confess that <laughs> I really didn't know what to expect. I did not know how many people were going to be here or from where or anything like that at all. And uh, it's a really nice venue, and so far we've been having a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully we'll be having some – in fact, we have a guest coming right now, in fact, uh, to join us. But uh, – uh, I've already spoken this morning, which means uh, uh, everyone has uh, gotten their nap and uh, are, are rested up now that uh, I'm out of the way. And uh, but we have some other folks that haven't spoken yet. And come on in, brother. We're 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 doing it. We're doing things live here. And uh, one of the folks that will be speaking, I think, primarily tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. Uh, t- tomorrow. Greetings and welcome. And uh, let's uh, turn the. No, this this camera here. Get that camera this camera there here. Shot just kind of there you go. More towards Should be familiar to the audience of the dividing line, except you're normally sitting on a, a flat panel screen. Um, and in fact, I I don't think we've had you on from England yet. You haven't been over there all that long. No, just a couple of months actually. Yeah, I mean that is home. It is home. Yeah. 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 So, honestly, where would you rather be, England or Canada? Well. Let's just say I'm I'm glad at this stage in my life with my family to be back in England. Okay, yeah, all right. I'm yeah. glad to be back in England uh, with with your World Economic Forum uh, Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. not the whole cabinet, at least. Which uh, is, is yeah, yeah. Uh, and and your digital currency yeah. and uh, yeah, it's it's all, all. Anyway, we won't go into the depressing things right now. Uh, even though one of the funniest things I saw was. Um, a book that has yet to come out about the rise to power of Liz Truss. Mm-hmm. And the authors are like getting ready to jump off a bridge or something mm-hmm. like that because that yeah. didn't really that pan out too really well. Happen. <laughs> no, no, even though she's got quite the nice pension. Yeah. Uh, what is it, 140? I think it's something, yeah, somewhere in the region of her. Yeah, if you've been prime minister, you yeah. get this all. I think it's about 110, maybe 107. Uh, that's, yeah. not, that's, yeah. that's not bad for 44 not bad. years. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because she's not that old. I so. think there is a question mark over, over whether she's going to accept it, being the shortest serving prime minister. Yes. In, uh, yes. But I, I think she has a legal right to it. Well, you know? she probably does. She yeah. probably does. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm very thankful that you uh, were able to join us after your period of mourning uh, for the Queen. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, I actually. It, you know, when I heard about it, I had been thinking for a long, long time that uh, I just I, I thought she was the most classy mm-hmm. uh, world leader around. Uh, there was a level of stability there. Yeah. You know, when you think of you know, seventy years is a, f- a long time, fairly fair amount of time, and um, the king. I could ask you lots of interesting questions about mm-hmm. theologically. Mm-hmm. And just real quickly, mm-hmm. I heard, confirm for me whether it's true or not, bishops in the Church of England, the new prime minister has a role in help in, in actually in picking them with the king. Is that true? The most senior bishops, yeah. Okay. Like the Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the, the prime minister does have, a, does have a role. And the prime minister is a Hindu. That is now correct, yes. In fact, I think he was just, uh, I think I just saw that he hosted some sort of Diwali yes. celebration yes. At, da- at Downing Street. Yes, he was um, lighting candles outside, right. yeah. which all this raises some interesting questions because we're talking about Christian nationalism in the United States. Mm-hmm. But England has the church baked in. Yeah. But looking at the church in England and what has happened with it, is there something to learn about the necessity of regeneration mm-hmm. when we're talking about, when we talk about the kingdom of Christ and an application in culture? Yeah. A lot of what my background was is you push that away because every time it's been hap- it's been tried in the past it ended up in nominalism mm-hmm. yeah. how, how do you how do you avoid that i'm not sure there is a, uh, a way to entirely avoid the possibility of nominalism mm-hmm. 
Um, I mean, we've seen it in even in new church movements mm-hmm. um, uh, amongst the independents. I mean, if you look at some of the most apostate churches today, Methodism, um, Presbyterianism, um, where there would have been an emphasis on mm-hmm. regeneration and holiness and, and, holiness, and mm-hmm. holiness movements, yeah. and yet they've slumped into formalism, nominalism, and then eventually, you know, um, apostasy. I mean, you've hit on some really interesting things, and actually, even as you were kind of reading them back to me, the recent history, a few things were occurring. The, I mean, the, one of the interesting things about the Queen's passing, um, the timing of it uh, uh, this year, um, she wrote, she designed her own funeral. Yes, years and years ago, if yeah. I recall. Yeah, it's like 20 years ago. And if you actually, uh, there, was, there were actually two services. One was at, um, uh, in London, of course, at the Abbey, mm-hmm. and then the other was at Windsor Castle. Mm-hmm. And uh, both were actually quite powerful. I found the, the second one perhaps a little bit even even more powerful than the, than the main, than the first one. Um, and four billion people, yes, nearly four billion people were, were watched in whole or in part that funeral and the scripture readings. Were and it was incredible. It was, it was like watching a, a gospel message. So, yes. And that kind of spoke to the, the issue you mentioned of, of, with respect to Elizabeth, that there was a kind of soft power. We talk about soft power. Mm-hmm. She had very little formal power. Right. You know, when people sort of say, well, why didn't the queen put a stop to this and the queen could have put a stop to that? And it's like, well, <laughs> doesn't you know, work that way. monarchy's changed mm-hmm. over, the, over the centuries. And so the power that she had was soft power. And if she had turned away some of these bills from parliament, I mean, it would have immediately created a constitutional crisis. Mm-hmm. And a question of you know what does politics look like mm-hmm. essentially a revolutionary uh, mm-hmm. p- a political action would have been to say I'm not signing that that bill into law um, and it would have created now some might argue maybe she should have created a constitutional crisis mm-hmm. perhaps but the point is it that her influence was soft power and, and when she died and I, I actually was much more affected by it than I thought I would be mm-hmm. I mean she is you know what people say you know that when they when you referred to the queen there was only one person that people had in mind yep. even though there's lots of queens in europe it was the queen right. uh, elizabeth because she projected this incredible sense of stability she was the in many respects the last touchstone of old christendom mm-hmm. she was the last referent for people to that from that older christian era mm-hmm. and there was an interesting article in the telegraph a major british broadsheet a couple of days later that I was interested in and the, and, the, and the headline of it was Britain is yearning for traditional Christianity mm. um, and it was this it was this incredible moment where very few people are, are relatively speaking now the Church of England's fallen below a million yes. people yes. are in church on a Sunday morning in, the, in an Anglican church uh, listening to the gospel and yet four billion people tuned into the gospel mm-hmm. at the end of the Queen's life. The point being the, 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 the mainline churches have thought that if we water down the gospel, if we, have a, if we have a more politically correct, woke version that we think is going to be less offensive, it's going to draw people, it's going to be more attractive, it's going to be more relevant. And actually the opposite is true, and even the yeah. Daily Telegraph realized that. Mm-hmm. This is what people think Christianity should be mm-hmm. there at the Queen's funeral. So it was, it was hard on, from that perspective. It was also difficult from the other point you raised, which is who's following her? And uh, uh, into the in, into into the role now, you know there would, had been talk previously about well, when Elizabeth dies, there's going to be a constitutional crisis, and people are going to be calling for the for the end to mm-hmm. the est- establishment in England, and so on. And Charles is going to be defender of the faiths, plural, and everything. That didn't really happen, and in mm-hmm. fact, he said that uh, he made quite clear that he was committed to his mother's faith. Mm. Uh, and that uh, he was going to defend the faith um, and take his role seriously um, as a as an Anglican. How seriously one can take that, given his yeah. track record, yeah. that's a problem. And I think the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. I also think it was significant that Liz Truss was the last prime minister that Queen Elizabeth um, invited to form a government. And basically, within a few weeks, there's been a coup because she wants a small state. She's a nominal Christian, but she wants a small state. She wants to cut taxes. She wants to basically put a, have a war on woke. And um, the market said no. Yeah, at least the markets influenced by the articles from the elites, from the banks, from the and the, all of the opposition that she uh, immediately. Now, one could one could argue, and it has been argued, well, if she'd have delivered these 
punches slowly um, and the presentation had been better for a budget and, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng had, had done it slightly differently. Maybe there's some merit to that, that it, that it could have been handled differently and therefore gone over better. But I was speaking to one of our fellows, uh, uh, Graham Leach, who's a, um, a remarkable Christian economist in the UK, he thought it was the both the best budget and the best uh, cabinet since the era of Margaret Thatcher. Mm. But that's not what the the elites Mm-mm. want. Mm-mm. They don't want the state rolled back. They don't want the uh, the state largesse and the handouts. And and they don't actually. I would argue, I'm not sure they even want incredible growth and productivity right. to release the the small business businessman and the ordinary working person and the, mm-hmm. the self-employed into prosperity. And so, within a few weeks, you have a coup giving us the shortest-serving prime minister in British history, and then. The coronation, really, of um, uh, our new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, um, who happens to be Hindu. Now... And, cre- and, and wealthier than the king. And wealthier than the king. Yeah, he's, he, he married a, um, a billionaire. Um, I think she's a billionaire. Um, and, uh, and I think he also has a green card um, <laughs> in, in the U.S., so, which is interesting. Now, it's been interesting to see what some of the Christian commentators have said because they've sort of said, well, better a, a competent Hindu mm-hmm. than an incompetent nominal Christian. Right. Um, and on the surface, that sounds plausible, but then the next minute, you know, you've got D- Diwali celebrations happening at Downing Street, mm-hmm. And I would say that, um, and in fact, I was, I'm in the process of writing a short article on this, is that um, I think that Rishi Sunak is a, a reasonably uh, competent uh, politician. Um, and he's actually got some uh, some solid people in his cabinet, including people like Kemi Bonadek, um, who I'm not sure I've got her now, name quite right there, um, but that's close, Kemi, um, who's a, who's a, a devout Christian, um, an evangelical. And the only reason that, uh, in a certain sense, Rishi's perspectives don't represent a direct, his religious perspectives don't currently represent a direct threat to British politics is because he's been radically watered down by Christianity. Mm. And that's the point. He is operating within a Christian constitutional arrangement. um, And I'd have to sit down with the man to discover what he really believed about uh, Hinduism and so forth, but presumably he's not going to try and institute the caste system in the UK, and we're not going to be reintroducing the burning of of widows on the funeral pies of their husbands. So he's got a Christianized Western version of Mm -hmm. Hinduism um, that uh, allows him, actually, and people, a lot of Christian commentators fail to appreciate that. They say, oh, what a triumph for religious pluralism. And, you know, he's a Christianized... He's, a, he's in the Conservative Party. He's a, he's a Christianized Hindu uh, who is now operating within that framework. And the, the, the actual root religious motives of the faith he professes don't have, can't, take, mm-hmm. can't take the reins. Um, and, you know, I'm not even sure that he would, uh, how committed he would, how much is he a nominal Hindu mm-hmm. um, is difficult to answer. But I do think there's been something of a coronation there of a, of a prime minister who wasn't picked by the Conservative Party faithful, um, but he was the elite's choice. Um, and, uh, and the first prime minister, therefore, that um, King Charles III invites to form a government is a Hindu. Right, right. Whereas the last one that Elizabeth II invited to form a government was a nominally it's Christian, Christian. Uh, conservative. So it's a in, very interesting time in the UK, but there is some uh, growing pushback against wokery. There's been a, a closing of the um, of the of the uh, the gender clinic. Yes. Uh, there's the, uh, Mermaids, which is a radical trans uh, organisation in the UK, is now under investigation. Um, and uh, you've got several in the current cabinet who are um, basically being tasked with pushing back against some of this woke agenda. We've had a piece of legislation that's enforcing freedom of speech in the college campuses because it was disappearing. Um, so there are a few um, small positive signs, mm-hmm. but they are few and far between. And what people seem to want is um, bread and circuses. Yeah, yeah. And the... Uh the same situations you all are facing in Canada remain as far as the restrictive legislation and and you don't see much in the way of bright lights. 
Well, it's Alberta, getting worse. Well, but but the in, in Alberta, Alberta, yeah. In Alberta, you did have at least the new premier there. Yeah, is pushing back a little bit. So the, the, that's the most conservative province in Canada. And the premier there would be the equivalent of a governor of a state. Correct. Here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, how much authority does she really have uh, over against yeah. some decree from Trudeau? Well, there is actually a the Wild Rose Party in Alberta is is pushing for um, either full separation or at least um, a much greater degree of independence for Alberta. Alberta is the is the one province that um, has talked about this for a long time, and there are certain um, constitutional potentialities in Alberta that would allow them to um, uh, to separate. Um, how much traction? Wild Rose really has is, is 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 difficult to say, but she is certainly, or the new premier is certainly aware that there are a lot of people in Alberta who um, are sick to the back teeth of uh, the federal government, mm. um, and historically that's often been true in 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 that part of the of the country, and so uh, she's pushing back a bit. She so in in Canada you've got certain powers are are. are um, devolved to the provinces, including things like um, uh, education and mm. health and a certain amount of taxation, too. Um, so the, the powers actually, interestingly, of a provincial parliament in Canada are actually probably even greater than a regional uh, governor in a state governor in the, in the USA. But they're never used, mainly because, or they're very rarely ever used, mainly because much of the Canadian provinces are on the take from the federal government, right, right. and so it's always about the taps being turned off mm -hmm. um, if uh, if there's there. any kind of pushback. So yeah. that's that's part of the issue. But in terms of the broader Canadian landscape, over the last um, uh, six months, twelve months, things from a legislative point of view just keep getting worse. So we've now got Bill C11, uh, which is now in a, in its final readings in the Senate, um, which is basically a bill. To put it bluntly, um, and if people want to check my Twitter feed, they can see an article from the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms on this bill, Bill C-11. Um, it's going to give basically control of internet content to the federal government. Um, videos, podcasts, it'll be, it, it, it basically hands to, the, it hands the key levers of authority and power to the federal government to essentially start controlling the internet. In Canada, mm. um, it's it's a highly dangerous bill, Bill C11, and then you've got the expansion of what they call MAID coming up now in March next year in Canada, which is medical assistance in dying. So again, uh. when this starts, you're told, well, it's just going to be for people who several doctors have said they're terminally ill and they're they're almost about to die, and we're just going to give them dignity. Well, lo and behold, it's been expanding and expanding and expanding, mm. and now uh, Canada is facing uh, in the new year children and depressed people being legally euthanized. Mm -hmm. They call them mature minors. So children who are deemed mature enough to make the decision uh, and people who are depressed will, will have assisted suicide made available to them. And um, to top it all off, I just had a pastor contact me from Canada. I was in Canada last week speaking and um, a pastor of a, of, a, of a large church in Ontario contacted me, said, Joe, I've just had a situation um, this week. He said, the police came to the church and they are threatening me uh, with being charged with criminal harassment because we are exercising church discipline. Um, uh, a, mem a member of the church received a letter from the elders about church discipline and uh, he's being threatened with charges of criminal harassment for church discipline in the life of the local church. Mm. These are some of the things that are actually uh, are, are going on just north of the border mm -hmm. um, uh, with no sign of, of uh, letting up at the moment. So uh, with all that said, obviously um, the subject of Christian nationalism in the UK has a different, obviously a bit different background. The, the state church situation there mm -hmm. makes... In, correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection is in the mission of God, there was a section, and I think Rush Dooney was quoted a number of times in regards to the nature 
of what would have to happen as far as a move of God mm-hmm. to bring about true conversion yeah. so as to ha- any type of quote-unquote Christian culture would have to be Christian in reality, not merely in name. Yes. And I'm hearing a lot of people pushing back because, again, as I said, from my tradition, the idea is we've already tried this, and it it fails every single time. Mm -hmm. So what has to be different? I mean, you know, you look at a Charles, you you look at his life, you look at Diana, you look at marriage, you look at his view of sexuality and everything else, and you just go, ouch, um, uh, that's not what we would, we wouldn't, well, we'd be facing doing discipline, (laughs) okay, in that that situation, and of course you can't when he's the head of the church, Um, but there's so much discussion of it now in the context of, well, what's your other option? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we're seeing now what secular globalism Mm -hmm. in essence is Mm -hmm. um and then on the other side you simply have political anarchy yes um there has to be some guiding principle and yet to have obedience to god's law that is something other than formalistic that's Mm -hmm. that actually flows from the heart Mm -hmm. there has to be a large number of actual Christians in That's a right. society. Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that required, shall we say, before you can even be speaking? And, and so what are we talking about when we talk about Christian nationalism? Are we simply saying to our society, you need to have objective standards that, are, that can be passed from one generation to the next, mm-hmm. and secularism cannot provide you with anything like that. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Christ or chaos. Yeah. Is, is, is that all we're doing until there is this major move of the Spirit of God that changes hearts and minds. Because right now I look around the hearts and minds and and my my heart breaks because Mm -hmm. there is a love of death, there is a love of self-destruction, there's a hatred of God's law and a hatred of God's way Mm -hmm. that is all around us. Uh, Doesn't that have to change? Yeah. Yeah, I see where you. I, I, I see your thought process in this. Um, it is a. It's an interesting question because part of the situation we're in now is is uncharted territory. I mean, mm-hmm. before we were pagan, and then we Christianized, and it was because people were becoming Christians, and because of the, the transformation. The, the, and it was gradual. It was steady. It was it was gradual change, and it took, of course, the Reformation and men like John Knox and and John Calvin and the Puritan Revolution in England, um, and even the, um, the Glorious Revolution uh, post-1688 uh, to actually get us to the, the point uh, where we could have something like the, the evangelical awakening in, in, in England. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think if you look at the history of it, you see both things going on. You see um, what we might call political struggles and squabbles about which states are going to be Catholic and which are going to be mm-hmm. Protestant, which probably which were not primarily driven by regeneration and matters of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, without the um, there would have been no lasting impact for some of those political changes hadn't if there hadn't been incredible fruit in evangelism and Christian mm-hmm. education and so on going on at the same time. So. We are in this uncharted territory because we've, we're at this de-Christianizing point. Secularization and secularism is fade, failing all around us. It's collapsing. Multiculturalism is, is, is imploding. Radical progressivism is eating itself alive. Um, and where does, the, where does the culture actually go? Now, if we look at, say, the, the arrangement in England, and, of course, you have the slightly different arrangement in Scotland with, uh, with Presbyterianism, um, King Charles III is the titular head of the Church of England, so it's a ceremonial role. And the 39 Articles make clear that he has no authority inside the life of the Church. He hasn't the authority to teach the Word or administer the sacraments. So there is a there the, there is a maintenance of a distinction between the role of Church and state uh, within the constitutional arrangement in England. That, of course, has allowed the 
proliferation of freedom for all kinds of denominations historically. Um, they didn't need to enforce Anglicanism. Um, that was a struggle, you know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the history of all of that, and you know that for a time even some of the Presbyterians would have liked and uh, would have liked a, a Presbyterian establishment in England. Mm-hmm. And so these different Protestant Reformed denominations, uh, it took time to figure out what was going to be the, the the ideal arrangement. Where we are, I think, now in um, a place like England is we're surrounded now with these cultural vestiges of Christianity. Oh, yeah. It's like the archaeology of Christianity. But it's a kind of living archaeology. I mean, that's what you saw with the Queen's funeral. Yeah, right. You see this sort of living... Um, uh, a, 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 yeah, that's probably the best term for it. A living archaeology of these vest cultural vestiges of the Christian faith, um, and people casting about now for some kind of sense of identity, some kind of sense of security, as all of the um, areas that we used to think of as sure and firm. I mean, a lot of the grief over the Queen is people grieving over the fact that that there was a symbol of security, mm-hmm. of stability, and now she's gone. They, they don't actually fully appreciate that the only reason she was that symbol and that she had these um, virtues that people so appreciated was her, the depth of her Christian faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what um, um, uh, made her who she was. And, you know, people sort of praising her sense of duty and loyalty and all this. Mm-hmm. Well, those virtues don't just drop down out of the sky. They're the product of a deep um, religious commitment, which speaks to the, the your point, which is, where is the society going to go if you've not got virtue and duty and, and responsibility and justice and righteousness and so on and these things being central to society what's going to happen to it um so it's i think that part of the key is despite the reformation and despite the english revolution we get to a point in the 17, uh, the 1700s so the 18th century where things are a terrible mess and there's a there is a real very real threat of a revolution breaking out in England like in France and there was a genuine fear that that might happen mm. but then you had men like George Whitfield and John Wesley taking who were anglicans actually mm-hmm. and and who remained anglicans taking to the fields because some of the the the, um, the ministers and the bishops would not let them into the right. pulpits to preach to preach the fullness of the gospel and regeneration and repentance and renewal was, was a big part of it. And that produced men like William Wilberforce, mm-hmm. and um, who was about the political, cultural reforms. And it wasn't just the, the one that he's most remembered for, which is, of course, the abolition of the slave trade, but it was also um, the well, what he called the, um, the essentially the recovery of morals right for, for, for Britain. What, what would it mean to have a reformation of morals. And so there were various instruments of government to suppress vice. Uh, Wilberforce talked about the fact that if you can uh, culturally suppress the small things that are considered the smaller vices, you deal, you naturally would deal with the bigger ones. Um, and that, he realized, took education. Mm. And so there was a big ev- educational movement at that time. And by the time Queen Victoria is, Queen Victoria is a child and she's being prepared for the throne, um, she's got an evangelical chaplain. So, and, and, and yet at that point, only a relatively small percentage of the Anglican clergy were truly evangelical. Mm. So it was, you see there, I think, a both and. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that, that the 18th century was um, analogous to our situation uh, insofar as it was a still more Christianized culture um, from a structural, from the plausibility structure point of view than mm-hmm. our own. Right. But I think there may be a lesson there in this, I mean, John Wesley's last letter, the very last letter he ever wrote was to William Wilberforce. Mm. Um, and uh, it was a, a letter of encouragement and it was telling him that, you know, if, 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 um, if, if, if God be for you, who can be against you? But men and devils are going to wear you out if this isn't the work of God. Mm. Um, and... Uh, Wesley understood certainly, as did Whitfield, the importance of this of, of regeneration, the power of the Holy Spirit to even get these cultural political tasks actually done. So I think, of course, it's a both and. Where are things going to go now? If we were looking into, if we we're asking ourselves as we look at Scripture and history, you know, how do we prophesy 
into this situation. I do think we're getting pushing towards a point where it's Christ or chaos, where um, we're gonna we are increasingly seeing the radical decay mm-hmm. of our. Of course, in Britain, there's the threat of Islam too, as you well right. know, right. Um, because of the sheer numbers of mm-hmm. of, uh, of Muslims in the country and uh, their aspirations and their goals for um, European society. Um, the question is, are we going to see a, a turning back towards Christ or are we going to see a further falling off? And I think the, the only way to, um, the, the, what will determine that question in the sovereignty of God, of course, is how the Christian church responds now, how Christians respond in these next couple of decades mm-hmm. um, to what is taking place. If, we, if, there is a, if there is a continued retrenchment in pietism, in retreatism, in escapism, in creating two kingdoms doctrines of radical separation of of this age or the age to come or of nature and grace um, then uh, I don't see anything but a falling away of our cultures into complete decadence and then it will be a missionary effort from the global south to try and recover our Mm. nations for the gospel in the future but if the church now can um, get a hold of a transformationalist vision of the gospel rooted in the transformation of the regeneration of the heart to touch every single area of life. You don't need a massive majority to change a culture. We know this from looking at the radical woke queer movement. Tiny, tiny percentage of radicals, radical intellectuals getting into, largely from the Frankfurt School, of course, getting into US universities, spreading their poison. Of course, it. Uh, there was a similar movement coming out of the French Revolution, and we've been living in the wake of that ever since. But that radical movement, you know, pre-World War II, that then exported itself to the West, tiny numbers of people radically changing uh, the culture. 120 in the upper room filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think there, it's hard. I struggle with sometimes flip-flopping between hope and despair yes, on yes, this one yes. and so it is hard to live in that that middle space of well we can only be faithful in our time and generation and God is able to do yeah. the miracles that uh, yeah. that we perhaps can't even imagine right now in our cultural moment I just kick the camera down there that's that's the that's the challenge for me is holding together the the promised hope together with the reality that there are there are some real deep valleys that yeah. we've already gone through in the past and and could be facing another situation where we'll be looking at that again. Um, if that's God's will, then our role is to be faithful wherever we're, wherever we're placed. But you, you said something there, and this wasn't what I was thinking about talking about, but I, I, I really wonder what happened in the UK and, and Europe as a whole mm-hmm. because of the horrific loss of life and death in World War One yeah. and Two. In World War, I mean, World War One was just a slaughter pen. You just, mm. it, you know, the numbers were astonishing for you know for ten yards worth of, of land, and then you had the the bombing um, in mm-hmm. World War Two and and uh, in Germany. You know, uh, you know, we think about. The bombing in in England, yes, but by the time the end of the war, it was the Allies that were taking out entire cities. Dresden Dresden did not have to happen. I think we can honestly say that was just completely inappropriate and wrong. And it just seems to me like there was a fundamental cultural change Mm -hmm. after... Because it was two wars, but they were so close together. Mm And so they they impacted two generations yeah. massively, but it just seems like the '60s and the rebellion and the collapse of ethics and morality and and a recognition of the worth of life. That's the generation coming after mm-hmm. the ones that experienced the horrors of the war, mm-hmm. and. I think it happened more slowly here because the war didn't happen here. Mm-hmm. There was there were no buildings. There was you know yeah. it, it, it all took place over here, and yeah, we lost a lot of people. But in comparison to the UK or Germany or something, it was infinitesimal. 
it just seems like wars like that, if they're undertaken on cultural, um, there was so, so many, when when those when the guys jumped off those boats at Normandy, mm-hmm. there there was still the impetus, the momentum of a Christian culture and self-sacrifice and these people we're fighting are evil and and so we're doing it for this reason that's gone and so it just seems like there was a massive change as as the result of this huge loss of life and maybe the maybe the church just didn't address it maybe the church just didn't see it coming but I, th- I feel like we're still dealing with the results of all of that and have yep. just never really realized how much changed yep. uh, when all those men did not come back. Or, as we know now, many of them that did mm-hmm. came back so damaged and so uh, destroyed internally. And we just didn't, we just told people to get over it, get back to doing what, you're, what you were doing. And it just makes me wonder a little bit yep. uh, if. In hindsight, we could have done something a whole lot better. And if if that did not hasten the abandonment of mm-hmm. any type of commitment to um, the Christian faith and to the idea of God and purpose and um, yeah. things that made such a difference in the, in the past in Western culture. I'm sure that's right. I mean, can you... I don't think you can look at those two conflagrations, the, the, the worst in all of human history, so far, and, uh, so far <laughs> and not imagine that they wouldn't have um, a radical impact culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to, of course, see an element of the judgment of God mm-hmm. um, on Western culture in those two uh, great wars. Um, Churchill called World War II, of course, the, the fight for the survival of Christian civilization. So mm. you're right, when those men were, were landing on the beaches and whatever uh, arenas of war they were in in World War II, they saw themselves as uh, fighting for something that really mattered, fundamentally religiously, mm-hmm. uh, that it was a fight for the survival of, of civilization itself, of Christian civilization itself. Um, and of course, after the war, Churchill is, is stunned by the fact that he's thrown out of office. Mm-hmm. Um, having delivered victory, and the people vote for socialism, and so there's a there's a there's some other factors here, and, and you know this history better than me. But at the end of the 19th century, by the end of the 19th century, you've got these philosophies and theologies developing of of progress, of um, utopian basically philosophies at the mm-hmm. end of the 19th century that really see man on this. Um, inexorable upward curve uh, and Marxism has this inbuilt notion of progress and utopia Utopia, uh, inbuilt and what you're seeing is the secularization of post-millennialism right you're seeing the secularization of they think that they can they can uh, deracinate they can they can strip um, a, a Christian eschatology of the Christ and the, and the kingdom of God. And a Christian anthropology. And a Christian anthropology. Right. And build the kingdom of man. And you can retain that. It was liberalism's essence, wasn't it? You can retain the morals, you can retain the virtues, but you don't need the Christ of Scripture. <laughs> and this was already happening in the churches. And it was happening at the end of the 19th century. It was making deep inroads. Mm-hmm. And um, I think then that with the wars and then the men going away, and I think you make a very important point there, that this loss of the men of fathers Mm -hmm. and the ones that did come back are so broken i mean my own grandfather radically damaged and broken by Mm -hmm. the war post-traumatic stress and they didn't fully even understand that then they didn't they didn't know how shell shock shell shock yeah yeah. um and uh he uh was so incapacitated emotionally and mentally until actually later his conversion but even then you know the, the damage was there uh, by the war that he wasn't able to to raise his four sons and daughter in the way that he would have wanted mm-hmm. uh, and that damage gets it gets passed down uh, and uh, to to the next generation and I don't know whether you remember Mary Aberstadt's book um, how the West really lost God Mm-mm. and uh, she talks about uh, sociologically we usually make the assumption that people stop believing in God and then they stop believing in the family. 
uh, and the family collapses. So you stop believing in God, the family collapses. She says that's only half true when you study it sociologically. As family collapses, as fatherhood and family mm -hmm. ebbs away, people stop believing in God the Father. Uh, and so um, I found that a very interesting book. She talks about this reciprocal relation between collapse of the family and then mm. collapse of belief. And so I think that it's interesting that with those wars and the steady, because what followed, as you said, was, you know, in the 60s, was the radical destruction mm -hmm. of the normative structure of right, the family right. and sexual ethics morals, yeah, and morals. Right. Well, it, from a fatherless generation, they called my grandparents' generation in England the silent generation. The silent generation who didn't pass on mm -hmm. the values of that older world right. uh, to, right. to the next generation. And so. Partly because you may have lost faith in them. You had seen such terrible, horrible you, things. Exactly. That why bother? Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that following that, as then the family starts to collapse and, and the men started emptying out of the churches. Mm -hmm. uh, that was followed by the women in you know the decades that followed, but the men left first, mm -hmm. and then you, so then you start getting this radical process of dechristianization. So I think the the these false secular eschatologies that were all about the parliament of man and his inconquerable greatness in 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 in, in taking over all of history and bending it and the universe itself to his will, and then he's hit with two world wars shows his own failure at doing all of that shows the absolute failure mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. of the of the liberalism that had made such inroads I into the churches too and then because that was already sown that was already there i mean one of my ancestors was involved in the formation of the united church of canada which was a merger of the methodists and the presbyterians in 1925 mm. became the largest protestant denomination in canada 20 years later 30 30 35 years later the denomination is being decimated, and today the United Church of Canada is a real estate board. They just all they do is sell property. I mean, I'm mm. I'm, I'm exaggerating the point. I mean, right, they still right, call right. themselves a church, but all they're doing is selling, selling off property all the buildings right. that they that they can't put people in anymore. Right, right. So I think it's a combination of those factors, and I do think that those those terrible wars played uh, a part in that. But I ask myself when you look at conflict now in Europe with. Russia and Ukraine and the immediate threat to the United Kingdom and all of that would would my generation and would the, would the generation under me uh, go to war in terms of justice and truth and 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 the whole idea of of, 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 of Christian civilization and mm -hmm. righteousness I don't think the courage is there I don't think the belief is there the belief isn't there no, uh, no the the words of Churchill would would ring very hollow yeah there's there's no the lexicon has been changed that's right the lexicon has been changed completely and that that's why I I look at our situation and I, I understand what people are saying people are saying we need to tell the world this is where, if, if, if you're tired of the chaos, you know, I, I have a, I don't know if you've seen these, but there's these LED strips, they're made of LED lights, so you can, you can put a message across them. And I have, I've, I've got one in the back of my truck and one in the back of my RV. And the one in the back of the RV, I can run while I'm driving. So I have Acts, um, Acts 17.31, about the coming judgment. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's scrolling across the back while I'm driving. I'm eventually going to get shot or run off the road or something, I would assume. Um, <laughs> but in my truck, I have a, a briefer message that says, it's Christ or chaos, and personally, I'm tired of the chaos. Mm -hmm. And I've got to remember I have it running because you have people pull up next to you, <laughs> and they'll pull into your blind spot, and then they're just sitting there, and I'm like, what are you doing? Well, they're reading my message, and I, right. and I keep forgetting about it. And then they, they're pulling out and going, <laughs> you know, and stuff like this. You know? And I, I'm, I'm, at first, I'm like, what? And then, oh, yeah, hey, cool, yeah. And I just have to keep in mind that I've got that thing going. But, it, but it's true. It, it's, it, it, it's Christ or chaos, and I'm tired of the chaos. Mm -hmm. and, and we see this. We see this chaos happening around us right now. And look, the, people are looking to us who've, who have a voice yeah. um, to give direction 
in a pretty unique situation. I know the scripture says there's nothing new under the sun, but that doesn't mean that there aren't new uh, conjugations of evils and things. I've often said, from my perspective, uh, it seems to me that the greatest evil that has ever stood up on planet Earth is secularism because it is the exact negation of everything that Christ teaches is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, there's no purpose, there's no judgment, there's, there's no meaning. All these things is what secularism is saying. And so if Christ's enemies need to be put under his feet, mm-hmm. something's going to happen that is going to do that to secularism. Now, you were saying earlier, you know, we're seeing it coming apart at the seams. Part of me is concerned because I have to wonder if that isn't exactly what they want mm-hmm. to create such a position of chaos yeah. that once people are in chaos, they're willing to say, look, we just want order no matter what that order is. Authoritarian order. An authoritarian, yeah. totalitarian order. Uh, and they'd be willing to accept that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem is, as soon as that comes in, um, there's a, they're, they're not going to be doing that on the basis of transgender rights or anything mm-hmm. else. They're going to get rid of all that stuff. But they're also going to establish, it would seem to me, a very anti-Christian uh, attitude in the process because you can't have totalitarianism when you have... The principle of freedom. The principle work. of freedom that comes from the risen Christ. Um, so as I... As people are looking to Christian leaders, the past few years have demonstrated that up until this point, outside of a few weirdos at Frankie Schaefer's house uh, and at Rush Dooney's house, and maybe they ran into each other once in a while or something, um, we were quite happy to just get along yeah. and didn't put a whole lot of thought into all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, you had the mission of God before COVID and stuff like that, and, and you obviously addressed a number of things there, though clearly even you would probably go, I'd want to add this, 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 and this mm-hmm. to what I wrote back then, now in light of what we've experienced, and sort of Ruler of Kings sort of adds that aspect yeah. of it um, for, yes. for you. I'm speaking of Dr. Boots' books here. Um, but I'm, I'm feeling a lot of weight as a Christian leader because these are, these are very weighty questions and they are, they're coming from a position of, I've never experienced this stuff. Yeah. This, is, this, is, this is new territory. And people keep asking, well, you teach church history, so how did people handle this in the past? And I go... <laughs> well, they didn't. No. That's, the, that's the problem. That we've never been in a situation where you literally have the ability on the part of governmental agencies yeah. to track every person's movements. They know exactly where they are. They know, yeah. and 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 pretty soon to even even control their speech, yeah. what can and cannot be heard. It's really, really hard to look in history and go, oh, yeah, they handled like this in the past because we've never faced it before. Yeah, no. um, and so uh, we're all having to think through a lot of stuff. We yeah. really, really are. And um, obviously, uh, you all up there in Canada, I think we're put into a pressure cooker that we didn't, like here in, here in Arizona, um, most churches did closed down. Apologia didn't. We were one of only, how many do you think there were? Two or three. Two or three you know, in the valley yeah. uh, that, that didn't. Um, and so we still had a fair amount of freedom and, and that magnified our voice yeah. because people were then looking at, well, here's the churches that didn't shut down, so let's listen to what they have to say. But you guys were up there in the pressure cooker. You were facing the imminent possibility of law enforcement officials showing up at your front door. Yeah. I mean, you and your family undoubtedly talked about that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you wrote out of that context, and it makes a difference, doesn't it? It does. It, 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 
talk, talk to me a little bit about that. How, how did you feel that that changed writing the book that, that John Cooper and I wrote endorsements for? Because mm-hmm. um, because when I listened to it, John was asking me all the same questions, and I'm like, so I, th- I think I think I wrote to you and said, hey, can I can I can I slip a, a, a pre-publication copy mm-hmm. to John? And, and yeah, 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 I go ahead. So uh, how did how did that pressure cooker change? your writing process and your what what you what you feel you need to address. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say that um, mission of God was theoretical, purely, mm-hmm. um, be, uh, because we were seeing all of the early signs of this, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. I and I was feeling in, in in Canada at the time, even though I was being called a hysteric and all this sort of stuff back in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, uh, that um, you know, as a as a pastoring a church as I was at that time as well in downtown Toronto, I could see the questions changing. I could see what was cha- things ch- shifting and changing in the culture, and the voices that I thought really uh, mattered from the past were just not being heard, and there was no interest in in, in hearing them. Um, but with Ruler of Kings, um, we had, and I was experienced the immediacy of of my own ministry being uh, effectively shut down. Um, we weren't technically allowed to be running programs for the for the institute. Fortunately, we right. had access to a farm property at the time, and and so we were farming uh, <laughs> du- <laughs> during our during our programs. Uh, but we had um, uh, my own uh, own church on one day had an, an, an invasion of the of the police uh, um, into the ch- into the church building, and I did have conversations uh, with my wife about. Um, uh, what's the plan um, right. if and when they come to, to to arrest me and so on? And there were, of course, several pastors in Canada that actually did happen to. Right. Right. Um, so for me, I guess there was um, there was a greater sense of urgency uh, mm-hmm. to to the to the writing. Does it process. clarify theology? It certainly does. It sort of cut, cuts away some of the uh, some of the excess there. And, yeah, uh, and you're and you're less concerned. You're definitely less concerned about being sort of seen to be measured. Or I mean, I had a chapter called "The Cult of the Expert" in there. Right, right. Uh, and, and I wasn't concerned about trying to maintain some sort of academic distance in the uh, in the writing. Um, it was absolutely. It was becoming so clear, um, and yet we were in and remain in. A tiny minority in the Canadian landscape, um, and the major movements and the major evangelical movements basically in, took a public stance against open churches. Right, right. Um, and uh, and I've have been circling the wagons for the most part uh, ever since, trying to despite the fallout being so obvious or undeniable. Um, I mean, there's all there's all kinds of talk now about Canada pioneering its ID system. Um, and uh, I was even hearing from um, uh, political uh, figures last week that uh, mask mandates may, might, might be returning to Ontario and this kind of thing. And so I think one of the key differences is that, um, uh, that there's sort of an added element in Ruler of Kings as well. And you, you talked about it. I mean, a number of years, uh, decades ago, actually, a book by a, uh, an obscure Dutch thinker called Van Riesen, he wrote a book called The Society of the Future. And he talks in there about the um, the inescapable direction of Western culture, with the abandonment of the principles of sphere sovereignty, mm-hmm. being totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. That was forty or fifty years ago. He was writing about yep. this, and so the mask got torn off during those last two or three years of what was already going on behind the scenes. And I was kind of talking about a mission of God, but during that period, the mask gets ripped off, and you see this technocratic scientific socialist order uh, that is wanting to impose itself on on society and as people saw up in canada you know the, the federal government um seizing people's assets right. uh riding people down with peace with horses, horses who were yeah, holding right. candy floss and uh you know and having a street party the freedom convoy and all of that uh, the extent to which the state was ready to go th- tossing pastors into jail most most christians couldn't have even have imagined that that even 10 years ago they'd have thought you would be losing it so i think it, it did help me it crystallized um there is a certain in ruler of kings there is a certain development of thought especially especially in this area of um, the nature of a Christian political thought uh, that crystallizes for me in, in Ruler of Kings and will continue to do so, I trust, as I continue to learn and develop. 
I am absolutely convinced that we are simply in a hiatus right now. Um, I, 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 they're, they're retooling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Climate's they, the next big one. Oh, it is. It, it, yeah. it is. It is the mechanism they're going to use to continue to yeah. push for this ultimate totalitarian, technological totalitarian yeah. state, and something you touched on that almost no one touches on at all. The transhuman, yeah, transhumanism, uh, transhumanism yeah. and the uh, insertion of what we call medical devices, but really, you know, uh, if you listen to uh, Noval, Noah Yuval Harari, yeah, Harari, uh, yeah. with the uh, World Economic Forum, you know, the next stages in human evolution uh, are all going to be. You know, the digital interface between the brain and the and the internet and all the things that come along with that, and of course all the DNA and everything else that we're doing. If if these advances were taking place within the context of a Christian worldview, that's totally different yep. than having these advances taking place within the context of secular humanism that has absolutely no place for the value of individual human life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I'm. I'm looking at this situation and and and, and going. There's going to be more clarification coming, yeah. And sooner rather than later, yeah. Uh, we've got a little bit of a vacation here, but what do we do with this time? Mm-hmm. What what do we do with this time? Mm-hmm. Um, now I know uh, we'll we'll wrap up here in, in, in a moment, but um, Ezra Institute is seeking to impact the next generation um, seeking to encourage young leaders we need people who have well let's just face it Joe you're younger than I am a little bit but we're, we're Quite a bit. We, we ain't yeah yeah yeah, yeah okay keep, <laughs> keep going keep going a lot <laughs> <laughs> yes yes okay you can stop there now thank you very much um, but um, but still, the fact of the matter is, we need the younger people who have the energy and the drive, and um, we have to we have to be sowing into investing mm-hmm. into the next generations, especially if we are going to be facing this kind of tremendously difficult time. Yeah. It's they and their children and their grandchildren that need to have a foundation that's going to last yeah. and give them that that place to rebuild mm-hmm. because a, a society that can't tell difference between a boy and a girl is not going to last forever. Yeah. And a society that is built upon technological tyranny also cannot last. It's, it, it does scare me because I have grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to go through this, but if they're going to, then I have to do everything I can to give them the foundation to be able to do so. Yeah. And it has to be a positive foundation, not a fearful foundation, not a we're giving up and, you know, don't polish the brass on a sinking yeah. ship type stuff. Um, but it also has to be realistic in that we could go through some really challenging yeah. times. And so you have your institutes uh, that you have in various locations. Um, in hindsight, in 2019, when uh, Jeff and Luke came up uh-huh. and they said, you ought to, you ought to come along. Uh, that would have been my one shot yeah. uh, to get across the border and to get back, get back again uh, in one piece. Um, well, we're coming to America for you, so you can come. You can turn up in your van. Uh, that's, that, that's that's true, but you're going to California, right? Uh, Florida first. Okay. All right. Well, Florida's free, so we're good. We're good on Florida for now. Uh, yeah, I'd avoid California if I were you. Uh, that, that's yeah. Anyway, sorry, Californians. I didn't, nothing, <laughs> nothing. Nothing personal there, but um, I like I like freedom. Uh, but uh, so you, you're working to do that kind of investment into the into the next generation, and that's what the Ezra Institute's about. And yeah. and uh, so we we want to encourage you to continue to, you, to do that and uh, get the word out uh, through through this and encourage people along those lines and, and challenge them as well. And uh, so you're going to be speaking, I think, tomorrow here. Yeah. What yeah. are you be speaking about? So while well, my they gave me the broad subject of ruler of kings. Well, uh, uh, wow! I wonder so, <laughs> why where they came up with that title. I don't know. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, uh, the 
the fact that there is a there is a third alternative to we tend to think or, um, uh, Christians tend to think that you either we're either faced with this choice of a return to a unified ecclesiastical culture like that of the medieval world mm-hmm. and then sort of the Constantinian boogeyman idea mm-hmm. or we have to accept secularism right and that's the those are the two choices and I'm going to be saying well actually no that's not Christian that's, libertarianism that's right that's right There's a, there is actually a third mm-hmm. option here uh, that hasn't perhaps fully been tried right. um, historically and I think you made a very important point in saying that um, you know we're as Christians we're not opposed to cultural work we're not opposed to um, technology right and putting uh, human thought human creativity the, the, the making of tools um, and so on to use for, for the glory of God. The issue comes when uh, if science, if the sciences in the broadest sense, human, human knowledge, um, are used to try, instead of tracing out God's norms and laws, mm-hmm. are used to try and control and reorder society, mm-hmm. the first casualty is human free. The human person is liquidated. Because freedom is is liquidated in a technocratic social order. What we want is a Christian order where we're putting all of our efforts, all of our powers, all of our um, gifts, all of our humanity towards the glory of God and his kingdom and his order. And that brings liberty. So it's an order of tyranny or liberty, slavery or freedom. And so in my session um, tomorrow, I'm going to be just trying to give people an understanding of these, how these two uh, primary ideas have diverged and how there is actually a third um, possibility that we can in obedience live under the Lordship of Christ um, and apply in all of our cultural work and efforts including the areas of technology uh, uh, and serve the Lord faithfully so how, how do we avoid falling foul of that false dichotomy basically I think it would be very very helpful because a lot of people they hear the standard objections and they're always based upon what was done in the past and, yeah. and and that kind of thing. And the the chapter that I listened to multiple times to try to get hold of, and you might find this interesting, I think it was because of my eschatological past and how I was raised, was I think I think it was the last or almost one of the last chapters <laughs> on the distinction between the church and the kingdom. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. That was yeah. that was incredibly helpful because if you were raised in a dispensational fundamentalist background, yeah, you've you have to read that one three or four times to go. Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 yeah. such a shift yeah. from from where you were to where you need to be to understand yeah. how to make application of these things. So. Uh, I, I bought a, a half case myself when it came out. So, Thank you, James. so not, most people don't do that, but I, but I did. And Can you I, buy a few more skids to get me on the New York Times bestseller list? <laughs> well, kind no. of in a, in a, yeah, in a warehouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard of some people to do that, uh, but uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, okay. no, not, not, yeah, well, Apology yeah. has got the budget. Surely. Uh, oh yeah, don't think so. <laughs> Jeff, we got the budget for that. I don't see Jeff around here, anyways. He's hiding. So, so yeah, no. Uh, so I do highly recommend it. In fact, uh, a friend of mine uh, has a webcast up in uh, uh, Las Vegas, not Las Vegas, Nevada area, and um, I just thought he needed some encouragement. So I sent him a copy of uh, to Amazon. So it was another sale for you. Thank you, James. Uh, of of the book, and uh, and I keep telling people, okay. Get ready to be challenged. Uh, you're not gonna. It's not gonna be a, an easy read. Not in the sense of difficult language, but I mean, you are British, so I mean, there is that, and and I think you misspell honor and labor and all sorts of extra use you don't really need anywhere. It could be a much shorter book without the, all the extra. Not use. big sins, though, are they? Yeah, no, small, no, not we're not done. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyways, I sent that up to him, and he said he said he's going to get to it. So we keep trying our best. Thank to, you, James, uh, to get that out there. Well, so, if, if um, you know, just, so, just so people, we do have it here. Oh, good. Just good. so people know, so all of my books, none of it comes to me. It all funds the Ezra Institute. So when you buy a copy of Mission of God or Ruler of Kings, it's all helping the Institute put on programs and uh, advance our work. So we're just opening a, a new office in Tennessee in the USA, and we're going to be starting to offer training in the USA very soon. And um, Well, that means I can put Chattanooga on my, uh, on my route list. Absolutely. Uh, put us so, on the list. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So so, and I hope things are, are getting better because, you know, a few years ago, 
things were so bad that you invited me to be one of your fellows. So I'm, I'm hoping that things have, have picked up since then. But at least if we start doing stuff in the in the U.S., you can actually come and speak. I can actually do and, something. And be a proper fellow for that's us. Rather yeah. than on online, uh, online the yeah. internet, which the, yeah. for some reason the net never liked me being on with you guys. It's not as incarnational, let's face it. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, thank you, sir, very thank much you, for uh, for joining us. It's and uh, I think we... I think we uh, there you get sound pretty good, pretty good close on that, and uh, we got our. We finally ended up with a, with a studio audience because you were all in there watching a session, which wasn't supposed to be going on right now, anyways. So <laughs> there you go. But thanks for thanks for showing up for the uh, dividing line, and uh, we'll see you next time. God bless.